Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. Thank you very much. Um, I'm really grateful and honoured to be here, um, especially to all the Deputy Mayor and all the distinguished people who have actually invited me to come. I feel I'm at home because I have been here several times before working with Andrew Plummers and the rest of the team here over the years. So it is the only strange thing is in the evening rather than during the day and there's a lot more traffic that you have to cope with to coming from Basingstoke. Um, but I think the subject of the Renaissance really came from the point of view that that probably is the best time to be in this field because technologically we have now reached the point that we can make big differences to the users and affordable designs can come out of this to be able to enable these technologies to be used. And for anybody who worked with design and engineering, there is a different um, parameters at work when you're dealing with humans. You know, we have worked with robotics, we have worked with um, other devices which can actually assist people and assistive technology is probably one of the greatest services that we can provide to humanity. But when you're dealing with devices which connect directly to human, it adds on this another flavor to it, which makes it quite unpredictable because each one of us are individual. There's seven billion footprints and seven billion hand thumbprints, and there's seven billion behavior patterns that we have. And to be able to cope with the requirements and the need and to get this wow factor at the end of it, it's really what drives us and what motivates us. So I thought to basically give you a sort of a simple background about the lower limb amputees, because that's the one area that um, is quite different in terms of providing mobility. And really looking at the design and engineering from the challenges that the user face. And I think the user experience and the user being at the center of it is well established through the work of designability and others. And then looking at how these components are actually come about and what the future will going to be bring for people with disability, which is quite large in numbers, and the number of people who have to be catered for um, in terms of lower limb amputation, around 10 million estimates, how we are going to address it, not only in the Western world, but also the rest of the uh, populations in Southeast Asia and Africa. So in terms of the numbers, I think you have got a variety of statistics in terms of the aging population, in terms of the factors affecting amputation and the percentage of the lower limb amputees compared to upper limb amputees. And these statistics basically shows one roughly one in a thousand people will suffer from amputation. The large number of the people being vascular uh, causes and diabetic, which is on increase, provides its own challenges. Other challenges which comes into it with obesity and amputation, then it creates a new challenges in terms of the safety of the devices and effectively providing mobility for people, but also independence, which is really what the requirements of most disabled populations are. And to be able to go to A to B and satisfy their needs is one of the major criteria of what devices we provide. And when you start looking at how this all this thing came about, um, I think up to about 50 years ago, uh, we had metal legs and wooden legs which still do exist. And uh, I came across an archaeologist in, South, Africa, in South, South of Australia who just after 40 years decided to give up his wooden leg up and have a modern leg because it was actually getting a bit tight for him. But he was never going to give up his wooden leg and on a metal socket. But um, what happened was uh, the third generation 
uh, owner of the company that I work for, uh, Brian Blatchford, he decided that effectively when he was very young, when he's going to his dad's workshop, saw this metal leg and wooden leg, he actually thought the amputees could do better and deserve better. And he made a commitment at that age, and most young people who have made commitment at that age, they have managed to follow it up. And he went and did a degree in engineering and effectively started applying engineering for the first time into lower limb prosthetics. And that enabled us to effectively have functional design, like stabilizing knees, to be able to apply an engineering principle of friction or a multi-axial ankle to be able to move the ankle in different direction. And then by going to a mass production, he was make, able to make them low cost enough to be able to assemble them. They were able to come what we call modular assembly prosthesis, like in Meccano, they were able to be put together on top of each other. So for the first time, you, don't need to, you didn't need to actually make a bespoke limb. You went and bought feet of different size, knees of different size, and just made the interface as a customized device, which was a big revolution. It had its penalties in terms of the weight and the connectivity of these devices, increased the weight, but provided enhanced function. Now, this sort of uh, development really is, is, is goes back to what Prince Philip always reminds me of, which actually says, whatever is not made by God is made by engineer. And, and you sort of... Uh, put the flag on into the board that actually say, well, in that case, we can do a lot more and we can do a lot better. So the, the four decades of mass production and mass product has been fascinating uh, history to look at and how this engineering application effectively split the industry into one side of the industry providing services and other side providing products. And that created a new profession, which is a prosthetist and orthotist, we call them. For me, it's easy to say. I'm sure if you wanted to repeat those words, it would be slightly difficult. But effectively, these were the fitters, the people who were able to now understand more about biomechanics of the interface, the interface pressure, and how they can actually tune up these devices. But to have this type of people wasn't sufficient. So you have to have multidisciplinary team of the consultants, rehabilitation consultants, nurses, occupational therapists, physiotherapists. And the sort of thing that you hear about as a buzzword today about multidisciplinary cross-functional was actually invented in prosthetic world a good 30, 40 years ago as a result of this application of engineering in this particular field. Now, one of the potential also changes which took place apart from this was improvement in medicine in terms of the amputation techniques, amputation surgery, vascular surgery, and there has been a tremendous changes. So suddenly all these advances come together and that effectively bring in a, a renaissance, a best position to be the best time to be able to address this issue. But at the same time, the population of the world, as you know, is increased. In the seven billion population, WHO suggests there is one billion disabled people. And a good chunk of them need assistive technology for mobility, and the number of amputation on the lower limb is estimated to be around 10 million, which on the number is not a huge amount, but when you have got only capacity to be able to fit three or four million amputees in the world, it means the other six or seven million people are not able to be fitted with devices that they can carry on doing the normal life and to be able to look after the families and the, the children. So that becomes a challenge that we are now facing today, and I 
put that up at the front purely because there must be higher goals to be able to enable to drive us forward. I think the goals that we have in terms of applying technology and making devices is one aspect, but they are a byproduct of this larger vision and larger resolution to be able to address these challenges. So mobility is the number one, and for us to be able to provide independence living is effectively is the criteria that makes us work. And the user being at the center of it, the rest of this story really comes and unfolds itself from here. Um, this has got a sound. probably enough to tell you what we are about and what we do. So if you look up the type of dream that it was made into a resolution to make something which is making a big difference to the users, it's effectively started its life by applying engineering. And I think, as James said, this evolved itself into application of computers to the control of the limb systems. And now we are no longer looking at ankles and feet as a separate item to the knees. And by getting the ankles and knees to talk to each other, uh, to engineers, it seems to be obvious. Why, 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 why didn't we do it before? But to be able to make it in the form that actually can be, can be made into a mass-produced product and be affordable and effectively, that's why we have managed to create the links. And that's really just a one stepping stone towards the next generation of integration, which you then connect to the entire limb system, to the bodies, through the interfaces and through the senses. Now, some of these appears to be quite possible in university research and um, sitting in the center of a university which can actually achieve this and we are developing products or the seeds of the products with the technologies which is applied. But to be able to, to bring them out into a production and commercialized world that you can actually supply in thousands and thousands for five, six, seven years life, that is really the stepping stone and the bigger challenge that we have to, for, to, to deal with. So the amputation statistics, as I said, majority of the people are vascular disease, but particularly the recent conflicts has provided us new challenges. When you get, and a fair, not fairly luckily, a small number of soldiers who have lost two limbs and also one arm, then you have got a different challenges. <coughs> now, thanks to advances in medicine, a lot of these young soldiers were able to live, whereas in the previous conflict, they wouldn't have lived. So the technology, would not have necessarily grown to meet their demands. So it's an unfortunate event, which also provides different incentive and different challenges for us to be able to provide solutions. And there's those solutions, unlike Formula One, that everybody used to believe that the technology will download itself into the mass-produced cars. In our industry, actually, it does. You know, once you start fitting devices to these high, highly capable characters who can you have seen in Victor's game and how they can achieve then it will actually spread itself down to the activities that majority of the amputees who are elderly can benefit from. Um, and eventually, I'm hoping that at some point, this journey will continue, that we can address some of these solutions which faces 
the rest of the population through technologies that it can actually apply to provide the low-cost systems to address some of these issues. And I'm hoping that by the end of the talk, we can actually get a sense of this and the direction that this actually can happen. So the challenge at the global level, as it has been mentioned by the WHO, is the fact that mobility is number one. Assistive technology is the key element of the addressing disabilities. And essentially, if you've got 10 million um, amputees, you need to have more than 10,000 professionals to be able to fit them. So effectively, you are thinking of about a ways or only way that you can actually provide these devices to them is to be able to develop these technologies in such a way that people can fit themselves. Now that I probably will be sort of arrested for saying this, that the professional body will say, you can't do that, you have to have healthcare professionals to be able to do it. And already there are indications that at least for 60% of the normal amputations, there is possibilities through sensing, putting sensors that people can actually self-sense, and putting adaptability and adjustability in the devices that can actually be provided, that you can satisfy those needs. And the 40% which have got complication and the difficulties, then you have these professionals through telemedicine and other technologies can actually provide them assistance. So I can already visualize and paint a picture of the solution, at least for myself and for you, to actually give you hope that you're not chasing something which is not possible. It's just it's the time and how fast you can do it before the energies run out. So you have to conserve your energy so you can actually achieve that. In the challenging part of that is also this population is aging and the aging population has different requirements. So where we would have made a limb to be able to get for that little young girl to be able to run, for majority of the amputees now becoming sitting down and standing up and to be able to stand the balance joint becomes a big issue. And then the ability to be able to reduce the secondary problems is also the other issue, the other cost care part of the equation. So the health service requirement is very clearly try to do more with less is a challenge. That's the, that's the challenge we face in this country and the rest of the world. And to be able to use the technologies effectively to be able to provide better services and better care is, becomes the challenge that we have to face. And in our case, we look after the entire life of the person. It's not the case of that they will get amputation and then you deal with them for a few years and then disappears. You have to have this whole care plan and the pathway for the entire life of a person. So, for example, if they need to have a knee replacement after 20 years because they have overloaded the knee joint, then that becomes part of the health economics and the equation that we can address at the source. So there is lots of technologies. Some of these, we call them a medical necessity purely because we know they can address this lifetime cost. If we can address this lifetime cost, then the evidences that we need to provide needs to be strong and robust enough that the healthcare payers can actually be convinced that this technology is not just purely because of some nice young engineers wanted to play with things and they come up with an idea which a few people really liked, but it really needs to be able to show the evidences for a large scale of the population. And at the same time, the technology is providing better and better solutions that we can even go and now look at the direct connection to the body in a safe way, but is it going to be cost-effective in the life of the person? So there's an underlying science which also needs to evolve and grow to be able to provide this type of devices 
and align them with the technology that it comes. So rather than looking at how fantastic your battery life is in your mobile phone that's no longer is going to run down in one day, the same with your leg, which was to have to charge every night. Now we have got this new battery technology, which was came up from one activity that somebody from Designability, for example, would have done for us, and now we can have five days life. It makes a big difference. So you have to come and buy our product because our product is better. All these parameters have changed. The new parameters are very straightforward. Does it reduce pain? Actually, you didn't realize that the amputees, because of the amputation, they're constantly in pain. The discomfort is excruciation, and you're actually able to reduce this. It enables them to have a better quality of life. Does it provide, effectively reduces the number of falls? You will see later on, in order to establish the health economic, the cost of the falls actually is one fatality in 14. So if you can reduce this, and there is a quality, quality of life per year, which is used as a calculation how much your life is worth, that health economics uses to be able to decide whether it's worth investing in these technologies or not. So the parameters have changed, and the parameters are not driving the design. So what are these parameters? What are the challenges that we face in terms of the risks that we, the amputation brings to the users. And there are quite stunned st statistics. So if you take out 40% of the amputation in the West are done above the knee, primarily because of the vascular surgeons who do this amputation, orthopedic surgeons, they are not confident enough to know that actually you have got enough circulation of the vascular integrity to be able to preserve your knee. Therefore, because you are not be able to potentially survive a second operation, they sometimes opt out for the above knee amputation. In Italy, that's about 65%. We managed to bring it down to 50% in the UK to, be, to 40%. It's gone back up again, purely because of the way the healthcare systems and the pathways are set up. And once you have got an above knee amputation, the problem associated with it doubles, magnifies. So they are not all like the Paralympian that you see running 100 meters in 10.5 seconds, and that's quite an achievement. But the actual body movement and compensation is quite different from the normal. So the challenges that we face as an engineer is not so much about the shape, the fit, and the functionality. Actually, the challenges comes back in to find out what the real problem is that we want to solve. As engineers, our job is to be able to solve problem. And once we identify the problem, how can we actually use artificial limb functionality to reduce that problem? And then sometimes you actually look at it and you see the real problem that you want to solve, like a low back pain, may have its roots in the different areas. Now the low back pain, for example, as an example, is you would say, well, most people have back pain. But actually the type of low back pain that the amputees have, and that's about 75% of the up to the age of 30 amputees will severely suffer from this, requires a very expensive treatment through the healthcare providers for the severe low back pain. So addressing that, you suddenly find that there is a solution which is going to provide a higher degree of independence and higher, higher, higher level of quality of life. So these amputees, for example, if you look up the current statistics from the data which has been gathered, for example, after 20 years, there's a chance of 14 times more risk of knee replacement on the sound side. Now, having gone through the exercise, it's very obvious. If, you, if I'm standing and I'm not putting my 
my weight equally on my both legs, one leg is going to take up a lot more loads. And the same way, if you actually have got to look at the hip joint, you will be able to actually get a sense that why there is 17 times more risk of the hip replacement for these, for these people who have a unilateral amputation. So the solution becomes relatively easy. If you can provide a device which can adapt to the ground and provide equal loading, whether you are standing on a slope or on the grass or on the gravel, then you get equal loading, will hopefully will result into equal loading of the joint, therefore the natural onset of arthritis, and therefore the reduction in the risk of the knee replacement or the hip replacement. And the same way it applies with other diseases which comes as a result of excessive loading or underloading of certain areas in terms of porosity of the bones or the abnormalities which is caused by the fact that you have got a leg missing or an amputation is onset on the system. So having have a better understanding of these issues and coming back in terms of scaling them down, what is the cost of the healthcare provider, you will come back to actually see things like low back pain is actually quite costly. It's more costly than the hip replacement and the knee replacement. And then you come down that scale and you can actually find that the actual cost of the energy consumption, the fact that the inability of the people to have mobility, and then you come down to the fact that actually falls, for example, is quite a frequent occurrence in the life of amputees. And the cost of the recovery from this fall could be quite high. So when you start looking at the bigger statistical data, you start getting a different picture of where your priorities are. So having these numbers in terms of the population that you're looking after, it provides you a much better understanding of the causes and the problem you want to solve. The next stage is to actually come back and look at the issues. Why would people fall? Now, if I'm walking here and everything is okay, but if I catch my feet against this obstacle and I don't see it, the chances of me falling is quite high. Now, if you have got an artificial leg which doesn't change its ankle position, it's quite a different parameter in terms of when you catch your foot. There's no adaptability. So the natural engineering solution is, can I provide some degree of compliance, some degree of movement? Does biomechanically, does that make sense? So you can then suddenly see you can address these problems through engineering design and design of the problem through the components that you can provide. And that's one of the unique things about the prosthetics. There's a space there. You actually can create things as long as it's not too massive and it's ergonomically packaged and it's not too heavy. You can actually provide solution. And that makes it, again, another one of the unique features in prosthetics. So then there are other issues which come and complicates the whole thing. What proprioception do you get? I can close my eyes, now I know where that is. But actually, there's a proprioception feedback through the touch and through the senses that's giving me the feed information. Now, if you don't have, an if you don't have a leg and it's an artificial leg, how do you get that sensation back? Do you pack it with lots of sensors and feed the information and put them into the connective to the neurons? Then you have got other complications. So the interfaces becomes an issue. Then the whole understanding of how does the control act? Does the control of one person with the loss of a limb with the stump, which is about four or five, six inches, is it going to provide sufficient input to the device so that the device is controlling the user or do you want the user to still be in the control of a device? And a lot of experimentation which was done, which actually the device was controlling user, it's like an autonomous car. 
I'm sure one day we all be brave enough to sit on them, but to have your artificial leg put on and let the artificial leg walk you, I'm not quite sure I'm there yet, mentally and psychologically, let alone the amputees. So the effect of use of application of computer control was for simple sensing and simple actuation. We're able to provide enhanced additional function. And this effectively has an effect on it. Now the simplest thing we did back in 30 years ago was I walk from A to B and it's normal. But actually if I walk very fast, the amputee has to really catch up with the leg. Now if I was able to adjust the limb, then the, the leg can actually change its characteristic through the swinging faster by putting an actuator or a pneumatic actuator, then they don't need to have this abnormal compensation. Now for most of you who have got engineering background, you know by now putting a sensor to measure the speed, very easy, even the students could do it now. If you put an actuator, a pneumatic actuator with a stepper motor and shutting its valve to create a higher pressure, you've got them in all your doors nowadays. So you can actually see there are solutions if you know the problem is that amputees, like normal people, they walk about and they change their walking speed. And if the leg can respond to that, then the actual compensation will reduce, therefore the pain and all other secondary associated issues will also reduce. So that changed the whole goalpost in terms of the, what objective you were going to be able to achieve and how you were going to achieve it and these technologies were able to actually provide us with solutions. So what the links did back in 2014 was to say, well, okay, if you have got microprocessor controlled ankles and microprocessor controlled knees, which they are functioning quite effectively, providing functional advantage for the user to accommodate different things like walking speed or stability when they're going down the ramp, but why can't we get them to talk to each other? Well, that could be a gimmicky thing. Because you say, well, do you really need to provide them that feature? Because for 20 years or 10 years of last five years, these devices have successfully provided good services for the users. But actually, when you start looking at it a bit more, you realize what your ankle and feet senses will provide the information what your knee needs to do. And what your knee does is actually related to what ankle and the foot are doing. I can go through the theory of it a lot more if you're interested. And there are all sorts of papers we're writing about it. But essentially, like a normal human person, the bipedal gait, his intention is like a wheel. So when I'm walking, you may see me as a bipedal gait. But actually, if you really carefully watch, it's a wheel. It's a single wheel, which is actually turning. And to some degree, most of us are now got used to the idea that we don't look at people walking like a bipedal gait, we see them as one wheel. Especially when people change their heel height. When suddenly you get a heel height, you will see the pattern of the wheel changes. Or if they have got one, one shoe missing, then it becomes like a square wheel. Then suddenly the solutions will start flowing, that you can actually see what is happening. So the idea of how do you make the ankle to function, actually by Mimatic, which was started off his life in terms of the woodpecker, I know the, the story of the woodpecker, which was done in Bath University, it is simulating what the human being does. Now the human being muscular activity is basically modeled in terms of a spring and a damper. It's like a shock absorber of your cars. So if you don't have a damper, the car is just constantly going to go on the road if you have just the damping, it's just going to sit. 
whereas a combination of the shock absorber and damper can stretch itself and adjust itself so you get a steady motion. Now, it's exactly the same way most of the muscle mechanic works. Now, moving the ankle in that way now makes quite a simple sense. If I just ask for those of you who are able to, if you are able to get up from your chair without moving one of your ankles, and you can see how the amputee feels, do you want to do it? So if you try to get up with one, one ankle doesn't move, and you can see the hands have to come forward to be able to make the effort. Now for those of you who are really brave, the excellent. So you get a sense of what the amputee can actually achieve. Now I don't ask for all the people to do it because I, can't, I haven't got the liability insurance yet. <laughs> for, but for those of you who are daring enough and take your own personal responsibility, if you can stand up and then lift one leg and try to sit down with one leg. And now you can get a sense. Well, great. Having woken you all up, so you're not sleeping anymore. Uh, but you get a sense how an amputee has to compensate. Now, if you can actually provide the ankle motion, which is similar to the other ankle, in terms of the damping characteristics, as you saw, then they can get up easily, and they can sit down easily. And then a lot of the secondary problem will actually will not arise. And interesting, if you look at them in the slope, here it is, the guy which has got a natural knee, he's actually walk, he's bending difficulty and he's loading the leg difficulty. Whereas the guy with the artificial leg, he's got an easy bending of the knees. Where do you see the difference? The difference is on the sound leg. The good leg, he has to keep it straight because he's putting most of his weight on the sound leg. Because he doesn't have a, an ankle which can effectively biomimetically adapt to that slope. Whereas if you have an ankle which can adapt to that slope, you can equally load both legs, therefore enabling you to be able to have equal loading on both sides. So what you address is the low back pain, the chances of getting a degenerative joint, in the long run, for the life of the person, as well as increased ability of the person. Now, that's an interesting one, if, if I'm not in front of it. You can actually see, this is a slope next to Crystal Palace, which actually started off, and this is, the guy has got a very safe knee, but by just having a fixed ankle and a versus hydraulic ankle, that's a difference when they are going down the slope. Now, imagine how many amputees actually avoid the slopes, they, 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 or they go in a the difficulty. Uh, one of the guys who actually did this many years ago, he said he went to a concert hall in Apollo when he was young because he's in a slope. Since he had, became an amputee, he never went there for 30 years till he got this type of mechanism that he was able to stand balanced for an hour, two hours without necessarily feeling the pain. So. These type of devices then will start addressing issues that you can actually see in terms of the stairs, in terms of sitting down, in terms of catching your toes. So you can actually see a simple ankle design, which appears simple at the moment, could actually reduce the risk of falls. And the risk of falls, if we can actually quantify that value of it, then it would be quite a difficult task for the healthcare payers not to be able to allocate the right amount of funds for it. 
So that becomes also part of the whole equation. You can't just purely design something and put it out there and hope for the best that one clinician or one wise person will actually come out. So you have to have the evidences. You have to collect the evidences. And we get a lot of evidences from research by universities who can effectively independently assess. And to be able to get, for example, quantify the toe clearance, how much actually this type of devices can actually clear the toe, then you have to design it in such a way that during the walking is actually providing you the support, but as you go through the swing, the toe can come up. So it can actually clear the ground. Because for you and I, we can compensate the cable. An amputee doesn't, may see it, but doesn't feel it. So one catching of the toe, and then you're down with your face. So to be able to provide the right level of assistance, then you start looking at really three or four millimeters. So it's a sort of a precision engineering coming into the whole equation. And then when you look at the standing, I think you saw that picture on the slope. When we started asking people, well, actually, what do you think the most activity that amputees participate is? We have done a huge amount of development for walking, because we assume we have to get people mobile to go from A to B. But five or six times more than the amount of walking people do, people stand. I'm standing at the moment. And standing is the biggest activity that amputees do. And then the next biggest is to sit. And standing to sit and sitting to stand. And then it becomes walking. Very few amputees actually go down the stairs leg over leg. We encourage them, we devise devices to enable to do them. But then the next challenge is, especially in the housing, if they want to stay in their own home, to be able to actually go up the stairs. This is really where Bath University's challenge is in terms of a lot of the work we are doing now. So you don't need to have a stair lift for these amputees to be put in there. So to be able to assist them to go up the ramp is great, so they can go shopping on their own. To be able to assist them to go up the stairs is also great. But the numbers are actually much, much slower, smaller than the actual need for a standing. And that is where the measurement of the improvement in the quality of life comes in. Now, in the standing, it seems to be very simple. But for amputee, it's not as simple as that. I think I don't want to sort of wake you up again, but if I was going to ask you to get up, those of you who can, and stand on one leg to see how long can you stand, and you can actually feel how much your body is moving. Now, you can measure this center of pressure, and you can actually see it's not that easy. And to be able to reduce that movement of the center of pressure, to be able to stabilize so the body stands balanced by even a couple of millimeters, it makes a big difference in physiological cost, as much as 25%. So the physiological cost of, in terms of oxygen consumption or beat per meter index that is measured, the fact that you can stand with equal balance and the center of pressure doesn't move, it will make a big difference in terms of the measurements. So these type of measurements becomes quite critical to be able to know the effectiveness and the efficacy of a particular design and a particular characteristic that you're going to provide. And then publication of these to be able to provide the information independently analyzed and assessed in our field is going to be very small because the numbers are very small. So you never get a power calculation of 500 patients and therefore the result for this, you get 12 patients, getting them to come and do the test is quite difficult. So we've managed so far and I think in the recent years, we have been able to stop saying, well, okay, let's look at alternative ways of 
getting peer-reviewed studies to be able to convince the clinicians and the payers in terms of the benefit that this type of devices can actually provide. And that becomes part of the research. So we use the clinical research not only for understanding what, we, what should we develop next, but also we are using it to be able to provide evidences for that. And effectively, when you started looking at the, the ambulation and the amputees and the activities they do in the, in the activities of daily living, we can actually see, well, we will find out what are the effects of devices which have an impact on sitting, standing, in terms of assist mode, on issues like falls, on issues like low back pain, on issues like the degeneration of the joints. And we can quantify those, then we can provide the value tag to them. A, a fall will cost you $18,000 in America. In UK, it's about 14,000 pounds. So if you have got a device which is essentially going to be less than 14,000 pounds, and it's going to be effectively reducing the fall, it's justifiable. If the device is 25,000 pounds, and it's not going to, it's going to reduce the fall in the same manner for the healthcare provider, it's not justifiable. These are harsh decisions that the, the people have to make. So there's a lot of devices in the market in terms of the ankle foot. You've got ankles which are going to be able to change with the slope. You have got devices which provide assistance through use of the energy absorption of the composite springs by using the dampers to characteristic to change so the energy can go to the heel to be able to push you forward and to be able to change with the walking speed. So we got devices now becoming part of the standard um, devices that is actually there. Sorry, I can give you a glass as well. <laughs> Um, then you have got the standing mode to be able to stand because what you can see here what changes you change to the ankle to be able to deal with the slope is different characteristic than what you have on the standing so you can actually see you need to have a, a microprocessor controlled device which can intelligently sense are you standing are you walking are you walking different speed are you walking on the slope, down the slope, and up a slope? Now, these technologies are becoming more and more readily available, more and more confidently, repeatedly available, and to enable us to actually provide this. Therefore, the cost of providing these devices become less and less because of the risk of these technologies and the complexity of them reduces. So, the next thing is to be able to get a consistency on performance because for most amputees, any two-step which is variant, they give up the leg. The leg goes into the cupboard. So the consistency that you can actually get reliable becomes the next challenge. The scope for an error is very, very low. It's almost one in a million that the amputees can tolerate and forgive you for it. If it happens twice, the chances are gone. So to be able to understand this type of characteristic at the knee, it becomes a bit more complicated because the knee is further up, you have got different type of setting in terms of when do you activate, when do you deactivate, where the knee angle is, whether it's on the slope, where it's actually going up and down. And then to be able to adjust these, you need a sort of artificial intelligence because it's not quite as straightforward of a lookup table to say for this person, because everybody is different, then you need to bring additional intelligence into the calculation. 
So the Lynx actual central part of it is, is a core central processor which actually processes the other three computers which are in the system. So it has got more probably electronic computer control power than your average smartphone at the moment, but I'm sure it's like the Apollo. In two years' time, your average phone will have three times more power than the Lynx that we sort of were proudly getting all sorts of awards for it. Um, two actuators, you have got an actuator at the ankle which can actually provide the movement and the hydraulic actuators at the knee and the pneumatic actuators which effectively sets the platform. Now I'm sure if you really wanted to know where you have got to do, where you're going to go next, if you speak to Andrew, probably I've been arguing that we need to connect the hydraulically the ankle and the knee together and then put a pump on it and start pumping it and in that space we can get it. I think there's a debate going on, maybe we should have two separate pumps at the moment or the battery life. But you can see the platform is there, the technology is there, the pathway for the future becomes a lot more straightforward and a lot more clear. So essentially the, the controller can control the knees and provide the input for the ankle the, and control the ankle and provide the information for the knee and provide this connectivity so you can actually have the same feature as the ankle with ankle and the knee on the ramp, on the standing, as well as on going down the slope and the stairs. So it won 2016 MacRobert Award because of not only was technologically advanced, because it actually made a three million pound sales in the first year of his life. And that was one of the criteria of his success. Uh, it won the German Design Award, which is quite interesting because our biggest competitors is in Germany and they are 14 times our size. So we are not very likened in Germany at the moment, but that's because of Brexit. <laughs> And recently we won the US Medical Device Award and we were the winner of the winners. So I think a lot of people are really proud of what, what, what the work has been done. But essentially all of it goes back to this vision. That resolution is not fulfilled. There was a dream, there was a vision, the impulse was put in and there's a long way to go. And in fact probably will go from my generation to the next till that's fulfilled. But in terms of the modeling and the justification of the cost, we now have moved away from biomechanical analysis to be able to not only show the impact on the individual, but actually to be able to convert information in a format that the NHS could now accept it. So recently we started looking at the clinical evidences that it was provided up to now and the discussion that people used to have about the peer review, the studies, and how these studies were going to impact. And we saw that for any new technology to come in, we need to add two or three years of data collection and selling. How do we sell it? Who do we sell it to? To create enough numbers to be able to make a justification. So that was the next challenge. And there comes the quality, the quality of life, which is NHS users. I'm not supposed to know whether you're supposed, you're supposed to know or not, but quality of life of one basically means you're alive, quality, no, quality of life of zero, you're dead. Now, if it makes a difference of one by 15,000 pounds, NHS will accept it. Please don't quote me on that one because I'm not sure about the figure. Uh, but if it is in a state, that value is $50,000 because they spend a lot more, at least on the rehabilitation side. Um, so we started looking at this currency and started looking at these qualities and how we can actually make an impact that it can be measured so we can speed up the process of acceptance and adaptation by the healthcare provider. So we looked at the studies which is done by the UK 3395, which is a survey data, 
and it's a whole new learning for me at this age, which is quite difficult, but I think we measured the direct cost, indirect cost and the health outcomes, and we were able to quantify and provide this through five simple questions, which gives you a health state of the person, and then you can get a value. So now that we can actually provide a device and get that information in a relatively simple way, which is also acceptable by the healthcare providers, then we don't have to wait for a long period. But that gives you another direction of what is the objective of a design, is to be able to create a quality difference of above 0.5. So we, are, we now know how cleverly we can measure this, and we can actually see when we compare this between microprocessor needs and the non-microprocessor needs, you actually see the indirect and direct cost, and there's a massive saving of $4,200, or in UK terms, it's about £3,000. Now, that's done by RAND Corporation, so they have come up with this simulation model which can provide this. So we now have gone to the social courts in Germany and other places which they have a court case to actually say the insurance companies, they have to pay for this because there's evidences that you actually win. So that has picked up and essentially we now know the threshold, like the MRI scanners were at $44,000 and it got accepted. If it was over $50,000, it wouldn't have been accepted. Or true knee, knee replacement, knee joint replacement is 12,865, it's acceptable. Microprocessor is 11,840, it's now part of the NHS policy. So the model in terms of the outcome is now proving very well. The next thing for us to do is about pain. So if we can actually measure and quantify the cost of pain and how we can actually reduce the pain by amputees through the technology, then we can actually calculate in a three or five years life, life of the limb, device, investment, what the benefit is going to be. And this is now providing us different model in terms of to be able to measure the effectiveness of the design. And you wouldn't have thought that when you started off looking at amputees and their need, you would have gone through all these loops to be able to justify the technology that you develop, but at least gives the designers and the engineers an outcome that they can actually say they made a difference now. They don't need to wait for, as Nigel said, half a million people being benefiting from it. We can actually accelerate that, in my view. So that, that modeling is effectively is becoming a new, new chapter for our activities in terms of the way we drive the thing and potentially the NHS microprocessor policy, which is in implemented, now accepting that through the selection that they have. And the next thing is for us to do is to be able to define what is the high activity, low activity, and middle activity, which is the majority of the users, and how this type of technology can actually benefit the people who are less able or less active by enabling them to have more independent life, as well as having less risk of falling. So um, I'm not going to go to take you through these particular areas because of time, but those who are interested, they can see there's a whole background, the back infra infrastructure in terms of what is provided. But the story is not only about the knee and the ankle. Again, I will run through these slides very quickly that one of the biggest problems amputees have is sweat because they have lost three quarters of the ability to cope with sweat in terms of the loss of the skin and the loss of circulation. And if you have got the interface which is not fitting, there's no point putting all these devices in because they will fall off every time you spend walking. So you need to have advanced suspension and enhanced suspension to get the proprioceptive controls. 
So the sweat is a big issue in most cases of the amputees, especially the children, and to be able to come up with solutions that we can actually drill holes of the sufficient size that can provide the natural vacuum as well as manage the sweat to create a drier skin environment is as important as having this sophisticated knee joint. And we have been able to actually prove that this works quite well. Ironically, the story of this started off with the military because a lot of the young soldiers, they sweat quite a lot because they're young people and they were fitted with all these expensive devices and they were unable to hold it. So there is a change coming. I think most of you have heard about the fourth industrial revolution where we can customize the devices. And really the story is about a smarter product, more reliable product, smarter logistics, so that effectively a cloud-based system where we can actually provide mass customized knowledge-based bespoke devices. So you make these devices not only in mass production, but you individualize them for the individual person. So you need to be able to assess them, put them into an intelligent knowledge-based system to be able to characterize for the individual and then be able to manufacture at the same price as the mass-produced item. Now, this is, believe it or not, it's happening for dog food already. So you can actually weigh your dog and potentially know what breed it is and what weight it is and what disease may have and customize the food that they provide for you already in the, in the commercial market. Already, those of you who use Lush makeup, you can actually have a scan of your face and effectively, based on knowledge-based system, have the right cosmetic devices or tools that you use made at the same price as the one you buy in supermarket. For the knee replacement, the customized 3D printed instrumented alignment devices has already proved increases the risk of the knee, knee replacement failure. And the same is applying for the stent. So the technology is already in the commercial scene. As it becomes available in commercial scenes, the competition has to cope with it. Now, we had recently reviewed a life science paper because of the Brexit. Now, one of the things that nobody thought about is that if the future is about integration of the product and services, it's not about the access to free, free access to the market. It's the free access to individual to be able to get the information you want to be able to make them customized product. Uh, I don't want to go into a political discussion, but, but, but I think there's an, these are the sort of areas that we need to be aware of that the technology is changing us. So you all have seen 3D printers and you all have seen effectively devices that is coming up in a variety of shapes and form. And in here we are using additive manufacture to make these complex hydraulic ankles. But I think linking them up to the individual need is the next thing which I would have thought it would happen in three or four years' time, but it's actually happening a lot faster than we think. So we have looked at the orthotic users in the Move8 project, which is a W, is H Horizon 2020 project on the year two, and you can actually see it on www.move8movaid.eu. It will actually describes the concept of being able to scan the individual person with the orthotic needs and to be able to effectively customize an interface with the sensor as well as the structural part mass produced for the individual. The long, the long care policy of the NHS is people should be able to sense themselves. So if they can actually have the sensing devices, sensors in the devices, they can sense it then they are able to actually provide that information and assess 
the fit of that information, pass the information to the cloud and get another device made. So it is possible to use this technology to fit these 10 million people who are amputees or 40 million people who need orthotic users. So this smarter system and in terms of the concept and evolution effectively becomes a revolution of the change which is going to come where the product and services integrate together. So 40 years ago when the engineering came up and split our industry into product and services, the same technology is coming up and converging it back again, which is really what is happening. So I won't go through the details of it, just really making you aware that the whole idea of a smarter product, a smarter production and smarter supply chain is already here and is happening. And although in, 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 in Cape Town I tried to introduce the subject and people were asking what's happening within that period of time, there's already a few more examples of actually occurrence of it in the industries going on. So this, is this whole area of the cyber world versus physical world is becoming almost an acceptable theme. And I think people are becoming more and more aware that we need to gear up and to be able to provide these technologies that can actually provide the devices that we want. So I'm really trying to conclude by saying that the future is actually very rosy and the future in terms of the renaissance in prosthetics is actually working quite well. And one of the areas that we need to be able to look up is also education and training. Because if we cannot educate and train not only the young engineers but also the young professionals with this technology now, three years time when they come out of university it will be a bit late and then effectively they will not be of value. So to some degree you want that link between industry and university and that partnership to enhance, to become deeper, to be able to provide what the industry needs are. And I think to some degree the technologies which we think are going to be mainly at the academic level, you may find it surprising that actually in the industry they are moving a lot faster. And the other part is about interconnectivity. And effectively everything is interconnected. It's not about your autonomous car, it's not about robots, and it's not about the social media. They are already happening that, that the interconnectivity you're not aware of, which is taking place. But we as product developers and product designers need to be able to know that this information is going to be not only securely exchanged, but also to be used in the right way that effectively the safety of the devices, safety of the people who use the devices are maintained. So where 2017, we have got a much, much simpler system in the horizon, which is compared to the complexities of the seven, eight years ago in terms of the management of the supply chain that will open up a whole new horizon for us. And I think the, the ONP, the cloud-based system in terms of orthotic and prosthetics is already started moving and moving away from uh, the convention. So I'm hoping that the rate of change will be a lot, a lot faster. To change people, we used to be the model that attitudes drive behavior, behavior drives results. But I think I'm now coming to terms that if you want to really change people, you need to change their experience. There's no point putting them through the change management policies. Change people's experience that we all change. And the same way was when you actually had to stand up. So in conclusion, really, if you look up, there, there's a lot of activities happening on the cloud-based system that we need to tap in, in terms of the patient services already becoming quite prominent and there are people here who have done a lot of work on robotics and their robotics work is well known in terms of the, the stroke patients or other areas that we can make an impact. But again, interconnectivity of these devices 
with other devices that are actually going to be used for the care of disabled people becomes a key area. Um, one other area which I was going to highlight is about the sharing of the science. Effectively, we have understanding which is deeper than what we started off in terms of developing product. Universities have got a much, much deeper understanding. And one of the things which comes up to help us to be able to compete is through having open access and open platform that we can actually share knowledge. And that knowledge is the underlying science, not only about locomotion and the characteristic, but also about how things work. Now that's going to be difficult for some of the academics and it's difficult for industrialists because they, want to give, they don't want to give a know-how. But there is a position that there's a only way that we can actually solve some of this problem, especially for the amputees and the disabled population, is through this open access route. We know what the amputees and the disabled people want, confidence and comfort. And we can measure them. So we can have means and models of measuring these and we can actually focus the concentration of the work on these two parameters. There are a lot of issues in terms of the health economics, in terms of the comfort, in terms of the suspension, in terms of shear force, but they're all interconnected and they're all joined together. And we are, we are aware and we can address those. So in summary, we can have drier skin at the interface, we can have adaptable sockets, we can have adjustable sockets, and we can provide these sensing devices that can actually act on that interface and provide control. We have got biomimetic ankles that we can actually simulate the muscles, which can function like a normal muscle activity in terms of the rate of pull and push in a controlled way. We can apply um, microprocessor control to these damping technologies and to be able to get effectively a totally integrated limb. So even integration of the limb is not an issue. And I think the integration of the limb in terms of the product and into services to the cloud-based system effectively gives you the path to go forward. <coughs> so this is really the industrial strategy feedback that we actually provided last week to the House of Commons. And hopefully some of these information through Royal Academy of Engineering will come out and hopefully will shape the direction that the government is going to take in the next few months. <laughs> Thanks very much, Saeed. That was absolutely fascinating. Um, we do have uh, time for two or three questions, uh, and we've got microphones uh, that I understand can be delivered. Um, so uh, who, who'd like to... Uh, we have one here. Thank you. Mark. 
Thank you, Zoe. That's fantastic uh, talk there. So, um, how fast can your subjects move? Can they run? Uh, with this particular Lynx device, they can jog to the bus stop, and they. But to be able to run with the sprinting, you know, going from jogging to running to sprinting, uh, the devices are not fast enough at the moment. There is another version on the development which can do that and help. But at the moment, most of the, the people who do a sprinting, they use the springs, as you saw with that like young girl. And the disadvantage of that is you need to have two legs to have to, that because you're not able to walk with them as fast. But the number of people who do a sprint is not that many. There's a few um, that you have seen in the Paralympic. Thank you. Any more questions? We've got one over here. Thank you. Uh, extrapolating from the previous question, what would be the challenges when it comes to climbing in that regard? Uh, we do have a number of amputees, and I have got videos of them if you wanted to have a watch. They do rock climbing, for example. Um, and I think you will find that most of the activities of rock climbing comes from the adaptability of the ankle, so the compliance of the ankle, and that's what the advantage of that particular ankle biomimetic, biomimetic ankle design is. It adapts to any orientation. It doesn't need to adjust itself. So effectively, it's under self-control or self-alignment. And then provided we provide knee stability for above-knee amputees that as they bend their knees, what we call a deep yield, so you can actually bend your knees uh, almost at, at will to a position and lock it to where you want, and you can still straighten it. Those are standard program that people have used, and for rock climbing hasn't been an issue. One of the issues with the rock climbing, especially with the soldiers at Headley Court, was the socket, they were sweating, and the leg used to come off. So, <laughs> so you had to address it through better suspension and sweat management, which was really a project that they started up. Thank you. Time for one last question. Thank you. Sorry, it's probably not so much a question more as a comment, but as an above-knee amputee, I find that so interesting that the first questions asked you about running and rock climbing, because what really struck, perhaps for the first time, I'm nearly 50 years old, was about looking at the person and about the everyday living. And I don't want to run or rock climb. I want to be able to walk down a slope, I which I can't do. Yeah. So it was, that was very profoundly moving for me to see that the design is moving into the integration and looking at the person's life. And we're not just exciting people who can run at Paralympics, but it's about our, our everyday existence. So I just want to say thank you. That You're was welcome. very interesting. I'm, I'm very grateful. But I think to some degree, uh, the legacy of the Paralympic may very well be in the, the seat for some of these questions, but more importantly, has kept the subject of the care of amputees on the public agenda. If you go to the EPSRC for research, prosthetic research and orthotic research is on top of the lists. Whereas, you know, before Paralympics, the community that would have funded this type of research would have been so tiny compared to the rest of the industry. So I think I, we shouldn't mind this type of question. We should encourage it as long as it keeps them in the, in the, in the, in the agenda of people. I think that's a really nice point to finish on. Thank you, uh, everybody. I'll hand over to the Chair of the Designability Council, Libby.
falls to me to do some votes of thanks. And uh, first, I, I really do have to thank you for, um, I have to say, an amazing lecture. So what you said interesting, fascinating. I thought it was astonishing. So thank I'd you. really like everybody to put your hands together and have a thoroughly good vote. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.